Welcome to Oz Property Investors, where you're smart, no BS friends who tell you the most interesting stuff going on in property. Join your host, Jeff Miles, former mortgage broker and property developer, alongside Joe Tucker, Director of Property Principles Buyers Agency, as they interview some of Australia's top property experts and commentators, so we can all become better property investors together. And we are live on Oz Property Investors. That was a quick one. We bring the big names and we have the big fun. How you going, Mr. Mike Mortlock? How you going? <laughs> That's very FM radio of you, Jeff. Very impressive. Although you aren't the guy <laughs> sure, with, sure. The, with, the, with the cans on. I'm doing well. It's, yeah. uh, it's good to be back. We're going to have some fun. My yeah. ears are already hot. <laughs> 22 <laughs> seconds in. Yeah. I'm excited for this one. We get Mr. Mike Lock, Mortlock. Mike Lock. Um, yeah whatever okay. my name is I've already i've already messed it up but no this is going to be this is going to be a big session how are you young jeff Mate, I, f- I feel uh i feel like a new a new man i've, I've started started new, new new gig and just uh Ooh. just having a fun time and, and really enjoying it and uh and and much more appreciative as the work some of the professionals in our community do now i, I love yeah it's it's a it's a good amount of yeah good to see behind the scenes but i'm i'm, I'm well joe how about you what's happening man Hey, I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I uh, I just went to the 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 pub down the road to visit a friend, and I got ID'd. So that felt really really nice. Uh, she's Jeez. like, "Can I say?" I was like, "Do I look 18?" She's like, "You look under 25." So I have to ask for ID. And I was like, "Thank you there very you much." Because there's points in life where you get it's the last time it ever happens, um, and one of those points is the last time you ever get asked for ID. When Mike was the last time you got asked for ID? Yesterday. 19 <laughs> a long time <laughs> ago mate. Starts no with a one nine. leave me out of this right and yes this there is. is always that time where it's the last time and i can tell you what buster yours was tonight don't get <laughs> on your high horse yeah i know yeah. i know the moment i know the moment <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that we are here to talk with mike mortlock and we're not going to do a full introduction that's jeff's job he, he makes it fun but um i'm excited because i guess a, uh, a tax depreciation expert. Um, m- most people don't really know what that means. So it'd be great to have a bit of an overview, Mike, but you have so much insights into the building trade and what's going on on the ground and what it looks like for the building construction industry. And we hear about all this, uh, you know, su- access to materials, the cost blowouts and all of that stuff. So I'm keen to unpack what it all actually means for, for property investors. I'm keen. But more interestingly, I want to hear what Mike thinks about property for 2023. I mean, the, the construction will be interesting, but it's yeah, and, and also future trends. It's all connected, and I brought PowerPoints. Yeah, we didn't even <laughs> test those. We should have tested them. Do you want, do you want to test it now? Maybe you should, I'm yeah. sure it'll work. Uh, it's only live. Yeah, no, nobody's watching. Uh, no, just a few, just a few hundred. Um, so let's, shall we get into the quotes? Uh, if people, I see some comments that people are rolling in, the crowd is going wild. So drop a like, drop a love, drop a react comment on YouTube and all that sort of good things. So let us know any questions you have and we'll get to those as many of those as we can. So what is your quote of the week, Joe, or do you want me to go first? I want Mike to go first. <laughs> oh, such a gentleman. Uh, my quote, I think, is is pertinent to uh, to the property market, and it comes from one of my favourite uh, men in history, and that's Mark Twain. 
uh, or Samuel Langhorn Clemens, as was his actual name. He said that to create man was a quaint and original idea, but to add the sheep was tautology. So he's basically saying that people are sheep. And I think that that makes sense for the property market because, you know, an educated investor is not necessarily buying when they see the green shoots because often that's too late. You have to be quite contrarian to be successful at this sort of stuff. So you don't want to be a sheep. 100% agree. I, I see it. I see it all the time. I see the latest hotspot and every, like, like I'll, I'll throw a real world example, like Rockingham, for instance, in, in WA. That w- that's been a hotspot for a very long time. I still see people going bananas, bananas in pajamas down there. Um, it might not be the best place. You might be uh, having better opportunities elsewhere. Um, markets within markets show. Should we throw another? Well, I tell um, you, yeah, markets within markets. I think Sydney is looking like uh, New South Wales is looking like a very interesting market. It's you know Victoria, because- Sydney are going. On the decline. Did you know, Joe, the median house price of Sydney, CoreLogic, 2023, oh. um, it's under a million dollars now. That's the dwelling price. It's 998000 I saw it today. So, first of Feb. So, here we go. We live in crazy times. What's Maybe quote, Sydney Jeff? is not king after all. What's your quote of the week, mate? Um, so, mine has, I don't know, I, threw, I try and make it relevant. And this week, I think just made it sort of crazy. But age is something that doesn't matter unless you are a cheese by Billy Burke is my quote. So <laughs> I just, I, I link that yeah. back to depreciation because you see the age of a building is only, is, is not, um, what, did I even, what was I even quoting again? Age is something that doesn't matter until you need a depreciation report. And then you sort of say, well, yes, I think it does matter because then the, the newer the building, probably the more depreciation. So yeah, actually, I don't know that knowledge is good, but it was funny. It worked. it worked. The cheese laughed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my quote of the week, uh, moving on. Uh, the best way to predict the future is to create it, Abraham Lincoln. I agree with that. Ooh. I think so many people get wrapped up trying to predict what's going to happen and take no action into create creating their own world. It's very it's easy wi- for you to... It's wild. It's so... Um, because I, I saw a post in the group. They did a poll. They said, which one has the great, uh, is likely to have the greater capital growth prospects in the next 10 years? There was Perth, there was Ipswich, and there was... I don't even remember the third one. And I was just like, that's insane. Well, how, do you, how do you even think that anybody can, with any modicum of, of accuracy, predict which of those and what it's going to be? I was just like, that's insane. But good on for somebody for asking that question, but it's a little interesting. What are your thoughts on those type of questions, Joe and Mike, given that we're talking predictions? What do you reckon, Mike? Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that can predict what's going to happen in the next 6, 12 months um, because the data, you know, you can see the groundswell. You can see things like the stock on market. You can see inventories. You can see vendor discounting, all all that sort of stuff. You know, you can see uh, short-term infrastructure projects. But to, to go, like, into, say, a decade or more, You've got to kind of understand the, you know, the the zeitgeist of Australia into the future. You know, are we, uh, you know, is there going to be another pandemic? Is there going to be a world war? You know, is is China going to show up at, in Darwin and say we'll have this? You know, like there's so many different variables, and you know, technology could be completely different. They're already talking about flying cars around. Um, the Com Games uh, in Brisbane, which is what only it's soon, right? Um, so maybe regionals will be like 
the the cat's pajamas. I just think it's it's way too far out. And anyone that that claims that they can do that, probably trying to sell you something. Mm. Sell your Wise property words. in the markets, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A brand new off the plan um, works well. Do not go. Do not buy them. Okay, let's go into our sponsor post, and then we're going to introduce you to this wonderful man, Mike Motlock. We've had him on the show before, which was an awesome success. So he's lost some hair yeah. as well. I see. Oh Jesus! It's yeah, I've I've trimmed it. <laughs> this live session is sponsored by Scott Agate from Hello House. Scott has created the world's first property negotiation as a service business. So what does that mean? Well, let's think about it. When was the last time you negotiated on anything over hundred dollars, let alone a property that is going to be one of the biggest investments of your life? The vendor, they have a trained negotiator on their side in the form of a real estate agent. That's kind of like you stepping into the ring with Mike Tyson after never training a day of boxing in your life. These guys are trained professionals and that's what they do day in and day out. And this is what Hella House does every single day as well. They negotiate on property to get the best buy price from the real estate agents. Scott Agate, he's the expert negotiator. He has been in this industry since 1995. He owned and operated three Bell franchises. Scott was the guy that was teaching these real estate agents all these agent games. He knows all of their tricks. Having him on your side is going to give you a massive unfair advantage and literally save you tens of thousands of dollars. Unlike other ways of purchasing property, Scott's incentives are aligned with you, the buyer, meaning the more money he saves you, the more money he makes, which is what you want. You need to have those incentives aligned. Scott has kindly offered our group a massive discount on the retainer fee for his service. So if you're looking to buy your next home or investment property, click the link below to get in touch. We are back. I love, I love a good negotiation. Might even be doing some negotiation next week. Uh, so, Mike, the, the, the person, the man of the hour. I, I, I wrote, uh, I, I might have stolen this off your website. So thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Mike's website. And uh, so you are an industry lead in tax depreciation. That's that, that's what you want to be when you when you when you grow up. You want to be a, yeah. an industry lead in tax depreciation. But you yeah. have worked as a as an expert consultant with Macca's, Canberra Airport, Hilton Hotel, just a whole bunch of. And you, I, I think the thing about you is you you have a, a, an amazing personality, Mike. You you actually you 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 like the Thanks, you're, you're the shining light of depreciation experts. It's good on you. So. I'm, well, I'm, I'm terribly ordinary looking, you see. So you've got to develop the personality when you when you got a head like this. <laughs> no, but yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And I think the thing about you as well is that's a that's a reason because it, it can be a very dry topic and and is very stock cut and dry to some respects. So the thing I also love about you is you you, you give it a go. You, you cycle and you rep, you've represented Australia in in elite amateur triath, triathlon. And you're yeah, keen mission, so I, once, I don't know. Mate. And yeah, it's it's always great to write your own review, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I did do that once. Um, I scraped into the national team. That was that was a real hoot. I got to swim in the serpentine next to a swan. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll tell my grandkids about that one. There you go. Hmm. Exciting. So and Mike, you fly you a plane. Say, usually... Oh, you go. Yeah. Okay. And he flies a plane. He's now a pilot, qualified solo. Solo, first solo the other day. Uh, it was my. I've done a number of solos, but that was my first flight as an actual licensed pilot. So I've passed my 
private pilot's license. So, yeah, I, I passed that on New Year's Eve. So I was perhaps the last pilot of 2022. It's, it's Todd, Todd Sloan's also doing that, isn't he? Yes, yeah, he's he's going slightly different avenue. He's going into the recreational space, I think, because he's cleverer than me and he's found a cheaper way to do it. Um, but, yes, he's been a little bit busy with all the projects that he's had going on, but he won't be that far away. And we've already talked about meeting in Mildura, so that'll be fun. Gee, Mildura. <laughs> Mid-air, perhaps. You could sort of, yeah, high-five each other. Yeah, anyway, maybe not. I don't know if it works that way. <laughs> Probably not. But so we, we're going to ask a, a slightly different question. What yeah. what is the funniest depreciation story, uh, depreciation purchase story that you have, Mike? Yeah, um, this one I, I kind of I've, uh, there's a lot, right? I've I've walked in on all sorts of things, you know, drugs and associated paraphernalia, people fornicating, you know, all sorts of different things, um, but. The one that sort of made me feel the stupidest and and wonder like what what is what is my life was I went <laughs> to do an inspection, and the guy was watching uh, television and it, like we had a bit of a clunky sort of communication, but he sort of gestured me in. But he was watching the TV in in France uh, in French, I should say, um, and uh, he, there was a, a, a an image of um, Mont Saint Michel, and I said, oh yeah, Mont Saint Michel, you know. It's in the, they, you know, went past there in the Tour de France and he looked at me blankly and I realised that in France they don't say Tour de France, they say Le Grand Boucle, the big loop they call it. Uh, anyway, so that was sort of clunky and I was trying to, to try out my rudimentary French, which I was learning at the time, and I went out the back and I was, you know, taking some photos and some measurements of different things such as we do and I, I chanced upon a rather aggressive dog that sort of looked like, it was it was fixing up to to chew on me, and I thought, oh no! Like so, I started going, oh, it's all right, buddy. Like it's okay. Like you're a good boy. And I went, hold on a minute, this dog probably only speaks French. So I stood there in the corner, going, uh, je regret, je regret, which is just, I'm sorry or I regret. And the dog's probably thinking, this is a weird, this is the weirdest thing has ever happened to me too. So we I, we bonded over that, and I wasn't bitten. <laughs> je m'appelle Mike. Je m'appelle. Oh, je m'appelle Jeff. Actually, but yeah. Oui, 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 mon sou. Oui, vous parlez oh, français. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Unreal. Unreal story. Yeah. I, 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 I believe it, though. I feel like you would get yourself into a situation like that. Talk yourself out of it through yeah. French. Yeah. I'll say. What, if, one you, if, you, yeah. if you meet a French dog, just say you regret. <laughs> if you meet a French dog, tell him Mike sent you. Um, One thing that I think is good to kind of cover off is if you could give us a quick depreciation 101 for some of the listeners out there that may not have a background of what the heck this field is. Um, I think that'd be a good frame, you know, base. Think about like a property valuation. You get a valuer out and they say, your property's worth X. Now that's that's a sale price, right? What they're expecting that the property could be sold for or has a value. We sort of act in a similar way. We go and we do an inspection, we take photos and notes, give you a report, but we're really just looking at the built environment. So what's what's on the land? The land is a non-depreciable component. So 
We estimate the construction value as at the date that it was built, the value of all of the improvements. And when you're renting out a property, you're able to, to, to claim tax deductions based on the decline in value of those assets. Because if you think about um, investing in property, you're sort of running a business, right? Like you're renting out the property to a tenant, they pay you, but the government gives you an allowance for the fact that you're using that property as an income producing asset and it's going to be wearing out. So a depreciation schedule is really just a report saying this particular year you can claim X amount of deductions based on that property being used as a business. Yeah. So I think you've encapsulated why people should care there. But if you want to hammer home, what is why, why should people, what are some of the reasons people should get it? Why should people care about tax well, depreciation? Well, I mean, if you don't, you're just, you're just paying more tax. I mean, this is not a loophole. You know, we've had two uh, elections on negative gearing where they're like, negative gearing's a loophole. I'm pretty sure it came in in 1936 and it is written into like the, the you know, the Income Tax Assessment Act. So it's, it's not actually a loophole, right? This is an entitlement. And as an investor, you're providing rental accommodation. And we all know the government is really out of that business. They own next to nothing of private rental um, stock. So there's a value in that. And, and if you're not doing that, then you're not maximizing your cash flow. And that can stop you from, from reaching your goals um, in the time frame you want to. So I, I think it's really important. Yeah, it keeps the the cash coming in. I mean, have you seen an uptick of of investors reaching out and having a conversation with you about depreciation? Because I feel like when when times are going swimmingly and you've got cash coming in, but as interest rates start to rise, people are like, oh, actually, how do I optimize? Or it, it hasn't shifted too much. I mean, we have. We've 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 gone through a real um, rapid pace of growth in the in the last little while. Um, but it's, hard, it's too hard to sort of pin it down to that being the reason. Like, you know, things are tight now, so we have to try a little bit harder. I mean, most people that know about depreciation will get it done, whether they're rolling in cash or, or, or struggling, you know, because it's, mm. it's there and why not claim it? Um, but certainly I've seen an increase in the education that people have around tax depreciation. <laughs> people are learning a lot more. Yeah, there you go. So shall we get into some predictions, Joe, or do you have more geeky questions to ask well, i have one other question about depreciation because everyone loves depreciation more than most cool. other things um it, let's draw a hypothetical world and draw a hypothetical house how would we build that house to maximize depreciation what would that house look like i'll tell you what would be really kind of weird about the house is that the whole floor would be carpet there would be no tile like the kitchen is carpet so if you want, so this is, I, I use this as an example because like who's going to do that, right? Like people are going to go, oh, it might be better for tax, but I'm not having carpet in my kitchen. Like that's a recipe. What's wrong with carpet in the kitchen? I don't have carpet in my kitchen, but what's wrong with it? Looks well, like I mean, strange. if you drop, you spill food. Traditionally, it's not a, it's not a kitchen floor covering. Like if you go <laughs> to a restaurant and there's carpet in the kitchen, you might be inclined to like walk to the next restaurant, for example. It's a bit unusual. Um, and the reason is is that the tiles, for example, um, are considered part of the building structure. So they have a 40-year effective life and a 2.5% depreciation rate, whereas carpet's a 25% depreciation rate, so it's 10 times better. But if you want the best deductions, you just like you you build the most expensive thing that you can. I mean, the only time overcapitalizing is good is when your your quantity surveyor comes to do the depreciation report. Um 
And I see Brooke just asked a question about, you know, how old is too old? There's a cutoff date for depreciation deductions on the original structure of 87, but that's kind of a, a tricky thing because people will then think about that and they'll go, oh, it was built in the 80s or the 60s, so there's not going to be any value. Yeah, and you said in the beginning, Jeff, you know, new property is better for depreciation, and that is sort of broadly true, but it's not always true. And I've even seen some quantity surveyors say that new property is always better for depreciation. But think about a house that costs, say, four hundred grand to build, you know, a four-bedroom project home, or a house in, say, Surrey Hills in uh, in in Sydney, a, a little terrace that was bought for $5 million and had a $1.8 million renovation the year before, but it was built in the 1920s. That property is going to kick the backside in terms of depreciation. So um, mm. you've got a, yeah, it's a great question by, by Brooke, but when we talk about an older property, we don't say, okay, there's nothing in it. We say, all right, well, we need to understand what's happened to the property over the years. I thought she might have been asking about how old is too old before you get asked for your ID, but um, I <laughs> with that depreciation. <laughs> 30 is the right age. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so that's, that's a, it's a very valid point because it's, it's a type of question. People think, oh, my property's 40 years old or, or, or 30. Yeah, and then they don't even think about it, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's was my original view before we, we reached out to you, Mike, and, and got you on the show before. I was like, oh, well, my property was built in 1980. It's not, that, there's no point even bothering. Why, mm. why bother? And then you asked me a whole raft of questions about renovations and air conditionings and carpets and floors. And I was like, I did the new ceilings that cost $10,000. Um, there is, is that opportunity? Maybe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, unless it's classified as a repairs and maintenance item, and then that can be an immediate deduction. Um, but there's plenty of rules around that, but yeah, like if you're having to replace something like that or your roof, then yeah, there can be some big biscuits in it. Yeah. Should we get into predictions? You're 20 minutes in. We promised predictions. Let's do it. Oh, we've got yeah. a slideshow as well. We've got, we've got Mike Mortlock's wonderful slideshow. Um, so this, maybe this is less of a podcast episode. So if you are listening to this on the podcast, enjoy our voices, but you may want to jump onto YouTube and like yeah, and subscribe oh, and wow. do all Jerry of that brought stuff. It up. Oh, no, Mike brought it up. Wow. Let's do it. No, I did it. Look at that. Yeah. Um, so let's just make sure that this whole thing works. Um, oh, sorry. oh, you've lost. You've killed me. Yep. Yeah. We'll get this right. Oh. There we go. That's the one I wanted. <laughs> Who is this bloke anyway? My yeah. Um, Why is this haircut so my... shit? <laughs> We've sort of done my um, my intro, right? Um, but I think, like, what's important for me to, to to say is that I'm a tax depreciation expert. I'm a quantity surveyor by trade. I'm not an economist, but I did get 49.5% in an undergraduate economics. And I was on my way to the uni to key the lecturer's car um, when he <laughs> rang to said, don't worry, that'll, that'll round up to 50 but I did actually do post uh, postgraduate property economics and got a HD in that. Now, that's not terribly impressive at all, but I think when you look at all the property commentators around Australia, the average is probably a little bit less than that. So a lot of this is my point is that a lot of this is my opinion. This is not necessarily what I do day to day, um, every day, but, you know, I'm plugged into a lot of people. I observe a lot of things and I'm keen to hear, like I'd love people to argue with me and say I don't believe it. So let's start the conversation, eh? Yeah, let's make mm -hmm. it. Oh, what are we going to cover? 
Oh, here we go. I can't even read that. But um, <laughs> let's start. Let what, what I wanted to sort of start with is let, like let's look at where we at. Like where is the property market at now? This um, this graph was prior to the core logic things that came out today. What a way to ruin a presentation, right? But what's really stark about this is you see that little blue line. It's it's the it's the steepest it's the steepest rate of property falls. Um, that, that I think has happened since CoreLogic have had their data, right? Um, and we're down 8.6% since the, um, the interest rate uh, changes. But to put that in context, does that mean this is a worse property market than it was in previous downturns? Well, we'll no. What preceded that was an incredible amount of transactions and property price appreciation as part of um, the boom that happened, you know, after the, the pandemic sort of calmed down. And this is the, you know, an, an unprecedented amount of RBA uh, interest rate increases. So, you know, that's why the graph looks like that. And, and yes, it's likely to continue that decline. But, you know, I don't, I don't see... Um, that we're going to be talking about these these thirty percent um, drops, and this this little doodad here, this this slide is is you know I think important to to remind us that in two thousand and nineteen there was about to be a boom, right? The property market was was well, well it was yeah. already booming, right? But then COVID happened and. For, for a fair amount of time, we didn't know what was going to happen. Like I was thinking I need to get more tan, uh, tinned fruit. You know, do I need a shotgun? Like what, what, what manner of the, the apocalypse are we ex expecting to see? Um, but then the property market went absolutely crazy. And I, and I think that there was a lot in it that needed to be slowed down, right? You, you look at some of the, the markets like Brisbane, it's like you wait a month and your suburb has now gone an extra five kilometres away. You know, I heard that from buyer's agents. You wait another month and it's like, okay, well, you were like new farm and now you're Ipswich, right? So you just, yeah, <laughs> press, the press the button before you end up in Alice Springs. It was absolutely insane. I, I, so, I, I, saw Mike, um, I saw a post, on, or I think it was on Twitter. Uh, I, I regularly follow the uh, the property bears because it's just it's funny to see what they're saying. <laughs> they, they were saying that Kedron, a, a suburb a sort of area in Brisbane, is apparently the median I don't know, has dropped like thirty five percent or something. Which I don't know. Just, I, I, can we can we address what are your thoughts on media? I mean, medians being because the the problem I have with them is you're not buying the median house. In, in the suburb, yep. so well, you're going to get to that, Mike. You... Uh, there's, there's, there might even be. I don't want to give it all away, right? And oh, I don't geez. want to. I don't certainly don't want. I don't want people to see how many slides I have and then disappear. But point two, <laughs> like this is kind of like, all right, well, you know, what do we do about this stuff? Number two, median measures are a bag of add a bag or add a bag. Are a bag. That's good. That's good. Um, that's good copy editing there, Jeff. Um, the, the reason why I think that's. Uh, Wait, that's what are important. we looking at? <laughs> you, you're jumping around. I don't know what's Wait, happening. Hey. My fault. Um, I apologize for that. No, that's all right. Like, so, so the reason why I think mediums are problematic and, and mediums can be useful when, we're, when, when, you know, the, the RBA is speaking or core logic is speaking, you know, broadly speaking, national house prices are down by this amount, but. We already said markets within markets, but then, you know, the esteemed uh, Kent Lardner, who I know is a is a, a friend of the, the 
the show, um, you know, he's he's shown a number of times how the types of properties that are selling can have a, a huge impact on the median. So, you know, the median's yeah. it's not always a good indicator of what's happening in that market. Yeah, I see I see it all the time, especially with properties that have waterfront uh, properties. They may have, you know, a million dollar properties, but then there's a highway mm. in between that suburb. Um, in between the waterfront and then maybe not a highway, but maybe a main road or something like that. On the other side of the road, it's $500,000. It's it's $550,000. And then all of a sudden the median house price, well, it's $750,000. So you go and buy in that $500,000 suburb at $600,000 because you're like, wow, the median's, you know, $750,000. You're making a big mistake there. So it's, yeah, it's about, I guess, identifying the pockets within the pockets and buying Mm. at that price making sure yeah. you're stacking up your comparables. And it, it's not, um, it, even when even in a rising market, it, it, the same thing does happen as well. I mean, it, it probably gets overinflated a median in a, in a rising market, maybe. I, I don't know, whereas in a declining, it probably looks worse than what it, what it probably is. Hmm. And it really tends, uh, tends to sort of be impacted by the prestige property market, you know, because there's a disproportionately uh, high value property and, and often the first to come off. Right, so you you know you know some of the cheaper suburbs in Sydney might still be seeing growth, but the premium end of the market is is bringing it down. Um, so mm. that that's where I think it's quite problematic to talk medians. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean the high end grows the most; it kicks things off, but then it drops the most as well. So you really got to be a little bit more time time sensitive, I think, if you're going yeah. to the high can, end. Yeah, can drop the most. I mean, I wouldn't say. It, does i mean unless you've got data on that I mean. it's a, it's actually um showing some the the the, the prestige market is showing really some resilience now um and i wanted to talk about some resilience and and getting a little bit of perspective here um so the bit that i've highlighted has said that prices remain well above where they were before the um the pandemic right so everywhere but melbourne uh, up until the recent data that came out today, which again sort of ruined it. But, you know, the National Housing Value Index down 8.9% since peaking in April last year, but the National Home Value Index was up a stunning 28.6% in the space of just 19 months. So I think we're getting very, very drowned out by the media talking about the property price declines, but without the context of, well, we've just come off a huge boom and, and you know, the vast majority of Aussies have got more equity today than they did um, pre-pandemic and uh, that, that sort of gives us a bit of context on what's going on in the market. I think, I think um, even chatting, like I'm, I'm still, we're still seeing sort of around the grounds. Like there's, there's definitely still competition at those, at those affordable prices, and it's not, it's not like property, a, a well, a well priced um, sort of you know, property is selling still relatively quickly. In, mm. in some... yeah, I see, I see it quite a lot where people are, you know, what I'm ambitious. I've got a good borrowing ability. I'm going to go after $750,000. I know I'm stretching myself, but I'm going to go for $750,000. And then those people all of a sudden like, oh gosh, we should go to a 700. And then the other people are going, gosh, we should go for a 650. We should go for a 550. We should go for a 500. It just gets to a point where there's everybody at the bottom and still looking for, looking for a deal and need somewhere to live. Um, and I know we're probably going to start talking about how many people like rental affordability and how many houses are actually, well, we probably won't go to affordability for next. It might be talking about supply. Um, but it's interesting, like 
the biggest thing for me is like, where are we going to put all these people? Where, where are they going to go? There's yeah. no houses for them in any, yeah. in any way for buying or for, or renting. Yeah, that is a problem. And, you know, housing um, or building approvals and, and construction activity is predicted to remain soft um, for a little while. So that, that is, that is a big problem. I think, I think perhaps one of the biggest um, uh, things that's going to influence what's happened happening in the market um, is going to be the interest rates, right? So, you know, the interest rate rises and falls can be a little bit overblown. And I've got a slide on that next, believe it or not. Um, but this is, believe it or not, um, the ASX 30-day interbank cash rate futures implied yield curve, um, which I know that you'd all be subscribers to. But if you have a I'm look at, at that, pretty uh, much most days, Mike, actually. I, yeah, I no, I, really, yeah. Yeah, I knew you would. Quite interesting. I knew you would. But if you have a look at that, their, 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 their prediction is we get to November um, 23. Actually, someone on the line that I know looks at this stuff is Jay Anderson. I saw him pop up before. Um, okay. and, 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 you know, this is the market's expectations of when the cash rate starts coming back. I, I think that there are so many fundamentals in the property market that are still so positive that any fundamental shift in consumer sentiment in and around um, interest rates, um, we, we could very potentially have a, a rapid boom. And this could be one of the, the tightest cycles from a wavelength frequency from, um, from the bottom of the market to the top that we've seen in quite some time. So, so does what... that mean you, in terms of how, how quickly the sort of sentiment, uh, how quickly it'll start to sort of start, um, start increasing in pricing? Is that, is that what you sort of mean by that? Yeah, I, I think it, once the, the Reserve Bank starts, starts dropping rates, and it'll be interesting to see what they're doing this month. I mean, there's a reasonable argument that there might be another um, 25 basis points, but that's probably likely to be as far as they're, they're, they're going to go in, in my view. Um, but, Ooh. you know, this is showing right. that interest rates are likely to come back um, towards the end of this year, right? That, that's, so um, that's an indication to me that you know, the... the the influence that interest rate rises has, has had is it's obviously eroded people's uh, borrowing power, but it's eroded their sentiment as well. And a lot of people are kind of thinking, oh, well, we don't, we don't want to be buying in a, in a market that's declining because we'd be losing money from straight away. You know, that was the sort of the sheep, uh, the Mark Twain tautology comment before. I, I think it's, it, it's going to turn around fairly quick. And you speak to a lot of people that are on the ground um, at the moment, you know, the good quality locations, there is still a lot of competition around. And I think it comes down to um, three main things. It's going to be um, rental affordability. So, you know, rental affordability is a huge problem at, at the moment. You know, we're talking, what, about 16-year lows of, uh, of vacancy rates. You know, building supply um, is going to be another issue. And, you know, we've got a lot of um, pressure on the construction industry at the moment with not just um, interest rates but, you know, cost of materials and the availability of trades and those sorts of things. And then it comes to stock on market. There's just not enough listing uh, activity out there at the moment. So there's, there's still a lot of demand for those quality properties. And why do you think there's not no one's listing their properties? Like why is there a limited supply of stock coming, coming to the market? Well, 
During the pandemic, there there was um, something like six hundred and forty thousand trans transactions. So a lot of the buying activity has kind of actually happened. There's a lot of people that um, that upgraded in that market. There's a lot of people that purchase, uh, and and I think um, the people that have sort of sold their property, wanting to lock in the prices. Um, when the market was buoyant, uh, are the you know the the inverse of that is people not wanting to sell when they're thinking the market's going down. They'd be more inclined to hold on to it, and there is a real important psychological thing at play with loss aversion. Anyone that bought at those high prices, mm-hmm. there's you know, there's a real strong um, need for them to not sell their property at a loss. They'd be mu- much more likely to ride it out if they can. Yeah, and, and that's the interesting thing about the psychology that it comes in. If you can't, if you actually, can you go, can you go back to that slide and just explain what we're looking at? Because I hear about the yield curve a lot, and I've never heard anyone articulate what exactly it means and how it affects everything. So I feel like you're the man for the job. It's actually not me. I'm definitely not your man. I'm not an economist. So like I would I would be doing I would be doing property economics a disservice to 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 try and explain the importance of that. But I think for for your average mum and dad person playing at home, it's basically the the market predicting that um the the cash rate is going to drop. Um, at, at the, la- the latter part of this year and continue um, through till, till mid-2024 uh, is at least as far as that um, indicator showing. What did their indicators look like a year ago? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was actually, it was about 1.8. I think at this stage they had the, they had the yield if memory serves me correct. So I don't know, you can go the way back. It's hard. Them. It's hard to listen to them. It's hard to to take their their new predictions uh, uh, seriously when when they make those predictions. Uh, that so it's not actually a prediction. It's so my understanding is that it's so it's people essentially so it's a futures contract. So it's people trading yes. what they anticipate. So they're sort of they're they're locking in a so it's somebody it's like anybody trading a futures thing. So. <laughs> what they expect it to be and then it's sort of how much they, money they want to put into that. So it's kind of, and they sell that contract. And then once that contract expires, I'll then sort of reprice it and say, well, actually now we expect it now to be a lot higher. So it's, so it's like a, yeah, like selling a share it's or people a, putting money where their mouth is. Yeah, it's 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 less of a prediction. It's more of a, this is what the market thinks. So I guess is, which is a sea of predictions, right? Mm. Yeah. What's that? There's a, the average aggregate of predictions will be around about correct. Um, if you have like a hundred, 200,000 pe- people guessing what is inside this jar of jelly beans, right? How many j- j- jelly beans are in the jar? If you average it out, you'll actually get very, very close to what it is. Mm. Which is normally the way that I enter jelly bean guessing competitions. It's the only way. It's the only way. <laughs> um, I want to have, I want to understand building activity is that where yep. we're going next jeff where are we going next oh so, yeah yeah oh well i don't yeah I, what, where, where do your slides go next mike because I, I i messed up the, the, the... no the, the, the slides the slides don't control us we we control the slides don't let's just just forget these limiting notions jeff yeah uh yeah. 
we, we can do whatever we want. Um, I've got, I do have a slide um, on uh, building activity. Uh, what do we got here? Oh, yes, here we go. Hit the button. This is clunky. Just talk amongst yourselves. And three, two, one. Oh, geez, I've got to select the screen. Are we had to drop off. There you go. Now you've got to add it. Um, so this is um, predictions for construction costs and building activity. Um, so building approvals fell for a third straight month to the end of 2022. And if you have a look at the numbers there, that's sort of hidden on my screen because I've got a little widget up there, um, but it goes all the way back to 2015. And these numbers are in, in thousands. Um, so these are um, the buildings, uh, the number of buildings constructed in thousands. So 2018, we're talking 230 and predicted from, you know, 2022 to 2025, we're still talking numbers, you know, well in well below the average of the last um, of, of say 2015 to 2019. Um, so that sort of says to me that there's there's not going to be any um, house price relief based on um, building activity at the moment. And there are quite a few um, headwinds for the construction industry um, for the next little while that I, I think will take some time to unwind. So the, what are um, the core challenges around uh, stopping that? I mean, I could have a guess, but I'd much rather you tell us. Yeah, in, in terms of, of construction costs? Well, just like what's stopping those buildings happening? Why aren't people building able to build as much as what we used to be able to? Yeah, look, well, I, I suppose it, it depends on the appetite of the developer and what their expectation of the result is going to be. You know, at the beginning of the p pandemic, we saw a huge spike in vacancy rates in the inner city um, apartments because we these were locations that I was looking at in the in the rent loss index that we were putting together, and you know, investors in those locations like. Um, uh, South Melbourne and uh, certain parts of Brisbane and and in and around um, the uni precincts in um, in New South Wales in in Sydney, the the, the vacancies were were crazy because we had a lot of the international students uh, disappear, um, and that's you know can't become a lot tighter now. Um, but just just the the cost to actually get these these properties built is a real problem. It comes down to a lot of different things, but, you know, mostly it's it's the materials availability and the materials handling. We've got an under-resourced construction sector. Um, and, you know, even little things like the East Coast low and the floods, um, you know, we lost some 130,000 hectares of, of commercial plantation. So that's impacting, you know, the price of timber and, and things like that. Um, so wow. there, there's also been global demand that's, that influencing things as well. So like 2022, the U.S. building sector had its biggest year since the GFC, up 25% on 2019 numbers. And, you know, when you consider that about 60 to 70% of, of our construction materials come from China and we had, you know, international shipping issues. We had the COVID issue in China and the COVID zero stuff. There's a, there's a lot of pressure uh, on, 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 on the construction um, prices because of those influences. Wow. That was a, that was a lot. Um, Mike. <laughs> Did that I answer just... the question? 
<laughs> it answers several questions. I've ran out of questions here, Mike. Um, right. But one of one of the questions I just wanted to take back because I know we get a lot of um, you know new first time investors and and people that are trying to connect the dots of of the world that may not want to ask the silly questions and and that's all I have. So um, how come building prices? Why are we talking about building prices? Why are we talking about building new constructions? For property, like um, obviously it's creating the the property itself, but how does that affect growth prices and uh, all of these things in the property market? How does it kind of connect? Well, well, dwellings. If, if rather we say houses or buildings, okay. like dwellings, um, are a limited resource, right? And you know, there's there's been all sorts of little influences um, that impact the availability of dwell dwellings. And one thing is. Uh, that you might not even think about is there's been a fairly elevated divorce rate since the beginning of the pandemic. And that's where often that we get households that are occupying one dwelling now occupying two dwellings. And there's kind of like an efficiency loss from our dwelling pool and things like that. So, I mean, it would be very difficult for me to sort of run for, I don't know, the head of the, the property turnaround commission and say we need to ban divorces Right, but you know that's just one of the things. When we when we build more property, there's there's more availability. It's more 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 supply, right? And it just comes back to that demand and, and supply mm-hmm. equation. And so when construction uh, when the construction industry is suffering, and there's been a huge amount of liquidations in the construction industry because at the beginning of the pandemic people were basically buying work, right? They were kind of thinking, oh gosh, like I don't know what's going to mm-hmm. happen. I'll just I'll just tender on this project on the smallest of margin just so I know that I can keep trading and keep feeding my trades Um, because that's a big part of of, of a building um, company. And, you know, when you see prices of materials, like certain things going up 70% in in 12 or 18 months, a lot of these um, construction projects are on a long lead time, right? So these fixed price contracts that they're obligated to complete, you know, in many cases, we're doing them at a loss. And we saw a huge amount of of liquidations in and some, you know, really big construction companies. Are they still going on? Are we still seeing people liquidating and, and going under? Or are we over yeah. the are we are we have we hit the bottom and starting to rebound and um yeah, what's that look like? There was there's there's been one um big name that's happened already this year. Um so big that I've forgotten their name. Um but it was a sizable business, right? Um I, I think you know we're 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 unlikely to see um as many as we have in the last year. Um, but there's a, you know, the, the head of the HIA is saying that there's a lot of building companies in negative equity. And it's a difficult situation you're in if you're engaging someone to build um, a property for you and they're saying, look, I know I've got a fixed price contract, but costs have gone up, we want you to spend this amount extra. In a lot of cases, that was probably the smartest thing to do was it to actually agree to it. Um, because mm. the way that the construction industry works is that, you know, a builder can just go into liquidation and then, you know, you've got the problem of how do you actually get that completed. And and, and a half-built property is, is not like half the construction money spent. And I don't mean that just because different items are worth more. Um, but no. the, the, the next builder has to take on the liability of all the works that are done to that point, right? And you've got defects yeah. liability period. So it's I've, very I've seen, I've seen half-built buildings less than land. 
Like just yep. the land, the land was, you know, let's just say 350 and the house with half a house built was 300. Yep. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. And many builders will not want to take that on. And if they do, you know, it, it'd be a huge margin because they do have to, they do have to assume those risks, risks. And in a lot of cases, it might actually be cheaper to knock that property down and start again. You know, it doesn't make sense. Crazy. It doesn't pass the common sense test, but that, that can be a real world. It's very, it's very hard to finance as well. Like you lend, a lot of lenders, like anything that's they'll, they'll straight away. I mean, most of the majors will will sort of knock it down to probably 60, 50 or sixties and LVR. So you need to, yeah, it's it's a tough one when you if you have to stop construction because somebody yeah. has to liquidate. So hundred percent. Well, if anyone's got any questions about building, I feel like this is a good time to to throw those in um, the building and construction industry because. I don't know. I don't know if it's just me, but I hear so much about the building and construction industry and it's just such a big beast. It's trying to wrap it, wrap it all together and understand it. But w- what do you see the next, I don't know, the next five years? Are there any going to, there going to be any big changes in the building industry that's going to either help the situation or hinder the situation? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, there's, there's state-based changes that are coming in. There's a lot of um, different things coming coming in to try and make it safer for um, consumers. I think what, what really needs to happen is the construction industry needs to evolve. It's probably one of the, you know, slowest evolving industries that we've got in, in Australia. Um, and I read a, a survey that um, said that I think it was 70% of um, builders don't actually have a CRM system to basically manage their projects and their their customers to be able to keep them up to date and that sort of stuff but you know the fr- the future is really in the um in the prefab space you know we've got to find a way um to to manufacture um buildings off-site um, in a way that's you know very tightly controlled um, from a quality and a cost point of view um, we, we can't consi- we can't really afford for construction costs to continue to rise the pressure is is coming off there's more availability of materials and the supply chain issues have kind of unwound um, but there's the you know the, there there was a lot of demand during the the home builder scheme that's actually probably created some of the materials problems and then we've got issues with um, natural disasters um, and I spoke to um, one of uh, one of the guys that worked for a household name builder one of the big ones right and he said we can't get roofers and I'm like what do you mean you you're like the McDonald's of construction like if anyone can get them it's you they're like no they're all getting paid like three times our hourly rate doing um doing reconstruction works on on demolished properties sure. or damaged properties right because if you think about an insurance company um for every moment that property is not being reinstated, they're normally having to put that person up in crisis accommodation or temporary accommodation. So, you know, often they're getting the tradies and the materials first. Yeah, that's such a great point because they're, they, they're losing money hand over fist, whereas they can they need to pay a little bit extra. Otherwise, they can yeah. lose a lot more. So it all just comes down to supply and demand, doesn't it? Mm. Could have finished the live yeah. in two minutes. Everything's just supply and demand done. Well, is that how you see them? Is is that how you see the market, Mike? Is is it is it that simple? 
Oh, I, there's simple, there's a lot but... more there's a lot more nuances to to just the supply and demand. Like as I mentioned before, it, it comes down to that utilization, right? Because you know you can have X amount of households and X amount of dwellings be in a perfect equilibrium. You're like, okay, we don't need to to you know to build anymore because it's perfect. But then yeah. you know you you've got people that are having babies, or you've got people that are divorcing and and and, and moving into to different properties. So you know there's there's always more to it. But of course. You know, the, the government has always looked on the on the, the the demand side of things to fix things. And in some ways, that's kind of right, because you think about first homeowners, the big hurdle is the deposit hurdle, right? So, you know, the first home loan um, saver schemes and things like that that's helping them or, you know, the stamp duty changes in New South Wales or the first homeowner grants. They're really they're really great for the people that get those grants, but for everyone else, housing prices have just gone up. So it just continues to put a fire under the backside um, of property. So that that these are all demand measures rather than supply measures. And it's not, I think, just about building more dwellings. It's it's also town planning and and uh, enabling areas to to have more dwellings. You know, to to go to higher levels, higher density, and that sort of thing. But it's also quite stark when you look at a map of Australia and like especially mm. at night when the lights are on, right? You see all the lights are down this tiny little strip. You know, most of the country is quite uninhabitable, right? But there's all sorts of regions out there um, that are just don't have much of a percentage of our population, whereas you look at somewhere like um, America, there's there's massive, there's many, many massive cities, right? It's not like just LA or New York, you know, there's there's lots of different examples. And, and we, I think we need to encourage the expansion of some of those regions. And part of the problem has been, you know, the, the, the ability to get from place to place. Uh, the transport infrastructure hasn't always been there. You know, the NBN was a huge issue for a long time. But we've got to see, like, governments investing and saying, well, you know, we're going to put the whole of the ATO in Dubbo or Albury or... I don't know. Pick a pick a place. <laughs> well, one thing that I find interesting is the prices for housing in the United States is very affordable, right? They have I don't know what the population is two hundred and fifty million or something like that, or three hundred million, three hundred odd million. Um, so they've got a lot of people, um, and but the prices are super low. Is that what Australia is going to get to? Are we going to get to a point where we get so chock a block full of of houses and people and prices drop to a lot lower numbers? Well, the income's also a lot lower, I'd say. Like minimum wage is, is concerned. I think it's like they increased it, but what is it, what, eight or nine bucks, Mike, or maybe a bit more it's, than that? It's, it's pretty, yeah, I, mate, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. Um, but, you know, it is pretty shameful, the, the wealth gap that they have in America and, and you know, their access to, to health care and things like that. And I don't understand the nuances of Obamacare, but, you know, it seems like you've got to have a really big agenda against, you know, the left to be able to sort of stand up and say, we think it's a bad idea that America has universal health care, right? Um, so it, it, I think it's a it's a completely different thing. Um, and the way that the mortgage-backed securities work in America is a little bit different mm. um, to here. I mean, you can't just kind of 
um, walk away from a, a property or mortgage delinquency in the same way that you were able to in in the US. I knew that I know that was an issue in the GFC. I'm not sure if that's um, potentially changed. But you know, our, our household wealth is tied up in property. The, the the government can't really afford for property prices to 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 let's say drop by eighty percent. And so much of the revenue, like of the state, you know, comes from things like capital gains tax and land tax and and you know stamp duty, um, and that's all being indexed as property prices go up. So there's there's too much at stake to fundamentally find a way to go, all right, we're going to find a way that to make every house worth half as much and that'll solve all the problems. It's, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. I like, I like this one from, this is a, this is a friend, of the, friend of the podcast, Jordan Dijon. He says, how long until we see a slowdown in labor and material costs? Will the costs come down or stay at current, the current level? I have some spare hair as well if you find a use with it in modern day construction. Apparently, <laughs> I think that's an in joke. Jordan's now moved to the Gold Coast and he's growing his surfer hair. And you know, his hair was already like a national treasure, so I can just imagine that it's <laughs> it's going to be absolutely glorious. Um, and you know, he has quite a bit of experience in the construction industry as well. Um, a slowdown um, in the increase in costs is already happening. So um, the AIQS has predicted a 4.3% growth in construction costs from here to the end of October. Um, that is, you know, that is a pretty strong growth, but it's it's slowed down quite a bit. Prices aren't going to go back to to what they were. Material prices might come down, but you've got to remember those builders that have been doing a lot of stuff on very low margins, and so much so that many of them have gone uh, bankrupt. They'll be looking to kind of re- recoup those losses and and you know build stable, healthy businesses. And the construction industry is, industry is a big employer, so that's really important. But you know the the pace of of construction cost. Um, price growth will definitely slow. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um that's interesting yeah because I I, I think um I, I suppose that'll hopefully potent- because the other challenge I think we've as they pointed out is in terms of getting more dwellings or is is actually getting them approved because the 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 lag time to can uh, can be sort of what 18 to 24 months depending on what it is. I yeah. imagine. I mean obviously simple yeah, it's a huge problem. I mean, I, I've seen in, in, in where I live maybe about 10 years ago, there was a new housing development that guaranteed a building approval turnaround in, in time in some JV with the local council. I mean, that sort of stuff we really need to see, right? We really need to, to remove those hurdles from creating new supply. Yeah. Yep. Mm, super interesting. Okay. Well, Let's have a chat about rental affordability because I feel like this is a hot topic that that I'm hearing a lot of everyone's upset about it, but I'm not hearing very many solutions. So mm. I'd love to hear, um, not saying that you have solutions to it because it is a deep and complex problem, but I'd love to hear a little bit more. Um, I feel like I've thrown you under the bus here, um, but let's jump uh, into our next sponsor and then we'll, we'll dive straight into rental affordability. Give me some thinking works. time. The amazing thing with commercial property investing is that in most cases, it's cash flow positive from day one, which means that you can drive those profits towards paying down the debt. There are instances with commercial property investing where you can actually have the property pay itself off over 10 years, which is absolutely crazy. 
With commercial property, you get massive net yield. So you can expect anywhere between six to 10%. And as we've seen in the current boom, these properties not only provide large cash flow, they do certainly grow wildly in value too. Now with big rewards comes some risk. And this is why you should de-risk your investment as much as possible. And the way you do that is with expert due diligence. And this is why we highly recommend people hire professionals to help you along in your investing journey. Steve Polisi of Polisi Property is one such expert. Being a chartered mechanical and structural engineer in a past life, Steve draws on his analytical and mathematical skills to do that expert due diligence for you. With six years experience in the space, Steve has over 1,200 property transactions under his belt. He's the guy you want in your corner, crunching the numbers and finding the best properties in the best locations, along with ensuring that you avoid the mistakes. Steve has actually even written the book on commercial property investing in Australia. And not only is it a bestseller, I believe it to be the most comprehensive in commercial property investing on the market today. He's been generous enough to give us a massive discount for our audience of 50%. So use the code OZPROP, click the link below, get a copy today and start learning and getting on your commercial property investing journey. There we go. So did you, did, you, did you take a jacket off, Mike? Or did you, oh, you oh this is business shot. time. This is, yeah. uh, this is business action time. Rental affordability, crisis <sighs> mode. Problems are yeah. going to be solved. I sat down <laughs> as I'm getting old. Um, and shout out to Polisi too, who's just off to Morocco to ride a camel because that's what Polisi does. I actually or is just the camel riding Polisi? I mean, uh, well, well, that's be- that's quite that's quite erotic. Um, <laughs> oh, I just got off a Zoom with him. Actually, terrific, terrific chap. Um, and yeah, he, he's he's a very, very clever guy. So I'm going to give him a, <laughs> give him a shout out. I mean, we just plugged another. Him right, so. There is a great question here. I'm curious as to whether Mike flew to his studio or caught an Uber because he does look very, very good. And you are in sure. fact in a in a studio. What, where are you, Mike? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm in the office, but it's sort of like um, oh, we've wow. set up this bit of a studio so I can, you know, I can do all sorts of things. I can go back here, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know so, much, so much opportunity. I've got a button. I can do this. Like, oh, what's happening there? You're just so, keeping people guessing. Guess crazing, isn't it? Keeping them guessing. It's like oh, a hospital I nearly, I nearly knocked it over then. Oh, yeah, I hit the door handle. Anyway, what's <laughs> the question? Housing affordability or rental affordability. Yeah, yeah rental affordability. I, I mean, like, it, it's dire, right? Like, um, yeah, Brooke, the, the wine is kicking in, but here's the sad story. This is actually a half-drunk bottle, but it's actually 100% non-alcoholic wine. So that's how Ooh, sad wow. it is. Wow, that's how much you home. like wine. <laughs> yeah, I've got to drive home. Um so, yeah, like I know for, for property investors, it's like, oh, yeah, like housing, rental affordability sucks. I can put the rent up. But most property investors that I speak to don't really have that view. They, they see it as a, as a huge problem and, and, you know, understand that whilst their costs might be increasing with interest rates and they need to try and recoup that, they actually kind of wish that there was a solution um, for people. So, you know, rental affordability is a huge problem. We... I think we we make the mistake in in the political um, 
political sphere in <clears throat> pardon me in Australia where we just talk about um, housing affordability is in like how many first homeowners are there and and is it affordable to to buy a house there, there's a reasonable proportion of the uh, country that will never buy a house right for for whatever reason they might have the type of work that um, just doesn't look good for a bank whether it being kind of casual or there just could just be a million reasons so I think affordability needs to consider rental affordability because you know when we talk about you know, housing affordability, mortgage stress. We should really just be looking whether it's a mortgage or whether it's your rent. You know, is it forty percent or more than your than your income? So that that's a problem, I think. But I've actually got um, I've done some I've done a little bit of thinking, and I've while while you ran that police ad, I've typed up eleven hundred and forty seven words. Um, <laughs> my first. My first point is is we need to build more housing, right? Um, there was nearly one here. I've got some stats for you. Nearly one million new households created between the 2016 and 2021 census. Um, so that equates to 198,000 households each year. The tumber, total number of new homes built each year, including owner occupier residents, um, second dwellings, was approximately 198,000. So you know we're we're underbuilding stock. Um, and I really think that construction grants can be part of the problem, but they need to be broader than just first homeowner grants. We need to get more property built. And I think those, those should be considered to go to investors as well. Incentives for investors to yes. own the stock that the government creates. Yeah, so incentivizing new construction through grants has always been a first homeowner thing. Um, but if you can include investors as well as new home buyers, then that can potentially increase the the supply of of, of rental accommodation. But we, we saw good. we saw that um, that scheme, the um, the national what was it, NRAS National Rent Affordability Scheme, which was encouraged to um, to 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 get investors to buy so to, with tax incentives. What, what, yeah. what sort of other – because that didn't seem to go all, all that well. It just seemed to – yeah. How, how would you overcome that's the challenge of that program or is that a – Yeah, because it was sort of on the basis that you would agree to provide, you know, rental accommodation within yeah. a certain price point. And, look, mm. I, I, I don't – I didn't see that being um, terribly successful and I think the government has had um, a, a lot of issues with, with many of those – sort of roundtable ideas that they come up with, you know, like the, um, you know, rent to buy sort of schemes um, where the, the properties are not necessarily the types of properties that people want to live in. Um, but I, I just think that, you know, stimulating the building industry in a, in a reasonable way that helps to increase the supply is something that we should look at. And investors have often been kind of left out of the conversation about affordability. And when we talk about rental affordability, in, investors are the ones that um, that are providing the vast majority of the stock. You know, the government owns, what, 25 to 3% of all um, private rental, of, of all rental accommodation, and it's just nowhere near enough. I was looking at it the other day. Like, I've... Um, uh, there's 66, I haven't looked at the number in Queensland, but there's 66,000 um, housing commission properties in Queensland. Um, that doesn't seem like enough for no. how many dwellings are in Queensland. Now, I haven't got the numbers for how many dwellings are in Queensland. Someone check the ABS stats, but it just doesn't seem like enough to be able to support enough people. 
Like, yeah. how are we? To put, put that in context, um, Pippa um, in 2022 found that 6.7% of their investors sold at least one property over the two years to August 22. Um, so that's a, a rental supply drop of 10% just in that period, which is a, approximately 269,000 uh, dwellings. Um, so, you know, wow. that gives you a bit of a context of, you know, we, 6.7% of investors sold at least one property and they're talking you know 269,000 dwellings as opposed to your figure of 66 you know thousand of of those government properties available it's it's a drop in the ocean could they have sold it to other investors though because or or they yeah they sold, yeah yeah a good question um but the, the the best the best advice on that is about 65% of that went to to owner owner occupiers oh, okay there you go. yeah just because that's what's in the market, right? The market right. is made up of a roundabout depending on the area and, and what's going on. Um, what are some some of the other creative solutions that you're seeing? I mean, are you seeing any creative solutions out there? One, we had a town planner on a couple of weeks back, uh, Alex Stefan, and he uh, has been keeping his finger on the pulse where the uh, Brisbane government, uh, sorry, the Queensland government has allowed you to put a granny flat on, on your dwelling um, mm -hmm. and allowing people to rent them individually. Uh, which yep. is awesome. So that then all of a sudden you have a, you can't rent your granny flat. Now you can, that has opened up the supply of property and why well, maybe not immensely, but at least it's, it's something. Are there any other kind of creative solutions you're seeing out there? Yeah, look, I think that's an obvious one. I saw um, a press release. I haven't read this morning come in from a guy who was talking about um, buying airspace and that's just technically allowing people to to build additional dwellings on top of their you know apartment blocks and those sorts of things so you know that's a way that we can create more living spaces without necessarily releasing new land so anything like that when it comes to mm. i see town planning and 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 local government development area control plans and those sorts of things as low-hanging fruit you know i'm not sort of saying that we should just you know open the floodgates and you know this house is um this street is just all um, single-level houses, but I want someone to be able to put 18-storey development there. But we can slowly kind of relax some of that stuff because um, unless we adopt a decentralisation model where I'm sort of talking about, okay, well, we need to put a lot more effort into the regions, then we've got to open up that supply. Otherwise, we're just pushing people more and more out to the city fringes and, and having to deal with the fact that the commute times are, are ridiculous. You know, the, the transport system that we have is not really good enough to be able to sort of say, all right, well, we're just going to go um, further out than, say, Melton um, and get this farmland and build all these cheap houses. You know, there's people who have got to find somewhere to work and not everyone has the flexibility to be able to do that from home. Yeah, that's a very good point. Speaking and of work from home, can I, I'm going to, maybe Joe was going to ask it, but I'll, I'll jump in. What do, you, what do you see the trends? Do you have any thoughts or data on the trend to work? Because I hear like a lot of big corporates are sending their office workers back three days a week now. Yeah. Do you have any intel on that? What, what I have, I have um, anecdotal intel from Uber drivers. Um, <laughs> that Best intel. Best yeah, they're, they're literally on the street. Um, and they're sort of saying, well, the, yeah, the CBDs aren't back to what they were, right? And, yes, a lot of the, the companies are saying, um, yeah, that, that whole, pardon me, working from home experiment was, was great. Um, but, you know, 
get you. I'll see you in the morning by nine o'clock, Johnson. You know, they, they're wanting they're wanting to see people and they're worried about the efficiency. And I think um, hopefully we see um, some some academic research that can show, you know, increases in efficiency and we kind of rethink that. But, yeah, we are seeing people move back, but not, not 100%. It, it, it was a forced experiment mm. that has enabled companies to go, look, we were maybe thinking about it in 10 or 20 years, um, but we're forced to basically say, look, if we want to keep operating, we've just got to do whatever we can, you know, post out the laptops and get these people working. So I, I do see a few more people coming back, but I don't think it's going to be the exact amount of, of, of tree changes and sea changes just having to come back to the city. But the yeah, cities are popular you... for a reason, right? Yeah, there's there's lifestyle drivers, there's money drivers. Um, but are you seeing that the government is trying to incentivize, you know, everyone wants to focus on the city. Everyone wants to live in Sydney. Everyone wants to live in Brisbane. Everyone wants to live in, in, in um, every other capital city. Are you seeing the government now throwing infrastructure spend and throwing all this money into the regions so it makes them more attractive so they take a lot of pressure out of Melbourne and move it to Geelong or out of Sydney and move it to Wollongong? Um, are you seeing a larger expense spent out into the regions to to compensate? No, I mean I'm not seeing it. I'd be keen to hear the thoughts of, from anyone that maybe um, maybe is seeing that. I mean, obviously there's infrastructure projects that happen all the time, but I don't think they're necessarily to try and attract people to move from capital city locations to the regions. It's just more serving the natural growth and the and you know the natural levels of internal migration that they might have been seeing. Mm. Yeah, it'd be super interesting to to see that because it sounds like it would take a, a lot of heat out of the challenges that they're having in the cities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ju you just imagine it if we had, um, you know, we had say 10 or 15 cities that, you know, had populations of 200 to 300,000 or more, it'd be a completely, it'd be a completely different property market. I think, you know, there'd be more um, opportunities for people to get into the market, but structurally we're just, we love the coast. We just hang around on the coastal fringes. You know, I, I employed a um, a Welsh guy um, just for a laugh um, recently. And, <laughs> we love um, the Welsh. If any any Welsh yeah. people watching, give give see yeah. a great rugby team and, and made the made the soccer world cup too. By the way, Mike, yeah. a little bit of annoying Lovely. accent though. But Lovely. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Sort of a compliment sandwich. I'll finish it with a um, lovely fella. Um, and he was actually incentivized from a visa point of view to move to, he knew he was coming to Australia, he moved to Melbourne. Um, last week he left to go to um, WA because he thought, well, why did I leave Wales to go to Melbourne when the weather is kind of the same? Because I think it was like, um, luckily for him, the you know, 16 year. Um, record of low temperature over a summer. It's just started to get hot and he's sort of buggered off to Perth. But that's an interesting no notion. Like why was he incentivized to go um, to Victoria rather than somewhere else? I mean, there's there's interesting little things there where, you know, there are incentives for people to go to, to regional locations from an immigration point of view. Um, but what else is the government doing to try and get people to, to move to those locations? I'm not sure. Got to change gears a little bit around um, what what you're sort of seeing in the commercial property depreciation space, or just what you're seeing anecdotally. Or are you doing like which type of assets are people getting building more of? What are you seeing? 
Mm. Uh, yeah, building, I mean, all sorts of different things. We're seeing a lot of mixed-use developments, which will be, you know, residential with a commercial sort of section to it. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest in um, self-storage and things like that. You know, the one, the one thing that Instagram gives us is the desire to have more stuff and we've got to put that stuff somewhere. That's a supply and demand issue, I suppose. Um, but, you know, commercial property has become um, much more popular uh, as an investment. I think it's a little bit less attractive these days with interest rates. Um, you know, the, the yields aren't necessarily as, as juicy as they, they were in the past. Um, interestingly, or you'll be the judge of this, there's actually been a new plant and equipment added um, last year in the commercial space, and that is um, sneeze guards has a two-year effective life. So that's my new favourite plant and equipment item. So those are those things you see, you know, when you go to Coles or Woolies, they have those plastic screens up. Um, oh, yeah. Those sneeze guards are now tax deductible. I tell you what, every, every, every buffet is going to be pumped for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good. That's good. There's more stuff to write off. Um, mm. Are there any other kind of big depreciation changes coming that we should be thinking about or considering as uh, as property investors that you're seeing out there? You know, the thing is that the biggest change um, really in, in my career in tax depreciation was in 2017 on the 9th of May, um, and that was a surprise. I was watching yeah. the budget um, speech with a glass of wine. This one actually had alcohol in it. It was good stuff too. Um, but I had to just leave it and drive straight into work and model what the impact of those changes were. So when you sort of say, like, is there anything coming? Well, I didn't know that was coming. And that was a huge change, right? And not a lot of people understood what that actually meant. I was crunching data and sending that to Louis Christopher and Pete Wargen because they were probably getting a little bit more airtime than me. So I thought, oh, well, I'll send them the stuff, like at least it gets out there. Um, so there's nothing that I see coming up. But, I mean, that, that that's that's an interesting thing um, that we could think of from a rental affordability thing, right? So um, depreciation deductions since 2017 have been eroded, right? So on, on average, we're probably sort of saying somewhere around 20 or 30% of the deductions that you would have got prior to that legislation um, you don't, you're not getting any more. So that's actually made investing less attractive. Now, that's probably not enough to influence investor activity so much, but I think mm. when you add that with, um, you know, two elections talking about banning negative gearing where people are trying to set their financial future up and make long-term decisions, we've got, you know, the Queensland government talking about their land tax changes where they're going to tax you for every property you own across Australia. You know, the Greens are talking about um, a cap on rental increases. You know, there's been huge legislation changes for renters in Victoria around minimum standards. And not all of that is bad, right? As investors, we've got an obligation to provide a nice, safe place. But there's been a, a, a lot of pressure put on, on property investors that has made them reconsider whether they actually want to be investors anymore. And we probably saw that data borne out in the PIPA survey where we saw a lot of um, investors uh, exit the market. So I think the government has got to accept the fact that unless there's some panacea out there or they decide, look, we're going to build, you know, a million homes and rent them out for $200 a week, unless they're going to do that, the problem, uh, the solution really lies with property investors. And 
and demonising mm. them, such as has, has happened in the in the political discourse, and 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 putting these kind of arduous things on them, and you know, um, show cause evictions and all sorts of things like that. I think that is part of the problem. I really think that um, this this rental affordability crisis was in many ways manufactured by by poor uh, political decisions. There you go. Let's put it that way. And, and that 2017 thing that you're talking about is uh, where you can't write off um, flights and things to your investment property. Is that is that what you're talking about, or was there more? To yeah, it just there's that? a tax uh, integrity bill. So yes, that that was not necessarily part of of the depreciation legislation. But yeah, you can't. You know, the investment properties in the Gold Coast probably became a lot less attractive because <laughs> people were going there on holidays and going, "Yep, yeah. no, it looks good," and then yeah. spending a week at um, movie world or whatever people do. Um, but no, we're talking about the rule that said that from the 9th of May 2017, if you're buying a property and you want to claim plant and equipment deductions, so carpets, blinds, uh, kitchen appliances, hot water systems, air conditioning, you, you either have to buy uh, that property brand new or you can buy an older property and you can install brand new assets and claim those. But if you're buying a house that's one year old and it's full of plant and equipment, you don't get to claim any of that. Hmm. That sucks. Yeah. That was a it was a big change, and there was, there was a lot of hoo ha about it. So yeah, but hmm. the, the property market still survived. It did. Yeah, and, and I heard and, and I heard a fair, a fair bit about it because um, I think it was it was it could have been achieved in a what you know the aims that they were trying to achieve could have been done in a different way. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it disincentivized uh, property investing. Uh, and you can see in you know loan commitments, investor activity is is subdued. But you know investors need to be able to be buying into the market at a reasonable proportion to be able to supply this uh, rental accommodation. Well, what happens if if they disincentivize property investors so much? Like, what happens if you know this this new legis the, the depreciation thing came in, but it was ten times stronger, and then something else came in? What happens if we lose? half our investors what does that do to the affordability and what does it do to the market yeah well rents would skyrocket right because like we're used to talking about rents going up but i can remember a a solid decade where rents did almost nothing right they just Mm. stayed flat you know and and pretty broadly across a lot of the country as well right um they did nothing for a long time because there was a reasonable amount of of supply um, but, you know, when you have investors exit the market, it doesn't perfectly work that, you know, a greedy land baron sells one investment property and, and, a, and a virtuous, happy little um, first home buyer goes in there and then the world is all okay. You know, there's a lot of people that will never actually um, buy their own home and they need accommodation. And if that's all, um, you know, if, if the supply of that drops, then, then it's going to put the pressure on prices. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think we, we, we did discuss some, some reasonable sort of, yeah. Any, anybody, any body of influence watching at home, there's probably a few people, please uh, yeah, pass this on. Or do you got more questions on that, Joe? Well, yeah, I, I'm interested about the, the migration numbers now that, that you may be seeing where, you know, over 2020, 2021, 2022, we had very little people coming to the market. And now that is, start, I don't know if you've got a chart on it, but you're now starting to oh. see like a, a bloody. Has he got a chart? 
little little have hockey I got stick. A... How many charts have you got? I should have asked. Oh, no, I've got a chart. I've got chart. a chart here somewhere. Um, <laughs> where is it? That's... Migration. Be under M, wouldn't it? <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Migration. Um, let's play this Migration. one. What have I got to do? The button again. Yeah, button. Click which also one. Also get a button. One. From memory, old school data would suggest boom follows low rental yields. Do you still think this will happen? There's a great, great little That's question. Jenny. I think Michael would Michael would have crunched some data on that, maybe. Oh. Uh, so oh yeah, I'll come to come to that one. Let's in come a sec. back to that. Um, mm. Overseas migration, you can kind of see um can you make the it COVID and, Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Um yeah, present. From current slide. Uh, let's do the other one. Duplicate slideshow. <laughs> there you there we go. go. Oh, look Tech at that. Wizard. Um, so you oh, can see we're real far back. Yeah, we're going back to the 1800s, right? Um, and you can see the context with, you know, World War One, Great Depression, all that sort of stuff. You know, migration was humming along quite quite nicely, but then when you lock the borders, obviously you get that, big drop down there, but it's coming back, right? You can see um, migration numbers are already um, showing um, an, an increase there, and, and, and I expect that to continue uh, to happen. You know, the, the students are coming back. We're, we're opening up the borders. We, you know, we, it's probably unpopular to say or, or, or speak this way, but um, the unemployment rate is, is, is really too, too low. Um, you, you need a degree of... of, of of unemployment to be able to function reasonably. You, you need people to be able to hire workers. Um, yeah. The unemployment rate, such as it is, is unsustainable. And you can, you, you only got to turn on the news or, or chat to your local restaurant and they can't get staff, you know. Um, yeah. seek, seek vacancies have, have dropped in recent, recent times, so it's... Um, it's 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 coming back a little bit, but there's just been a huge labour supply. You know, the farmers that were getting people to pick their crops, you know, a lot of those were, were backpackers and backpackers. international students and things like that. So we, we do actually need um, that workforce to be able to continue because um, and we're talking, people have been talking about this profitless boom, right? You know, prices might be going through the roof, but they don't have the people to, to service them or the, or the wages, you know, potentially going up as well. Yeah, I, I heard that migration? Have you, have you got any stats on that? Like who's, because is there still people, a lot of people moving to Queensland, a lot of people moving to WA? Yeah, Queen, Queensland was, was the definite beneficiary and the real loser was, was Melbourne. Um, yeah, and, and when you when you look at the um, the difference between the COVID outcomes for say Melbourne versus Queensland, pardon me, so many more cases in Victoria. And you know what were they talking like two hundred and fifty six days of lockdown, which I think was almost like an international record. Um, so yeah, a lot of people left a Melbourne. A worldwide and, record, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the price differential in, in, say, places like the Gold Coast, Southeast Queensland, you know, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, you could actually move from, you know, affluent suburbs in, in Melbourne and, and get a, a McMansion for, for half price. Um, now, things have changed a lot in Southeast Queensland, Brisbane especially, but it's still a more, more affordable location. And, yeah, the, the data did sort of show that a lot of people came from uh, Victoria and moved to Queensland. Uh, and to answer the question, that was Jenny, was it? I can't see the names on my login. It was, it was Jenny. Yeah, I looked it up. 
from memory. Old school data would suggest boom follows low rental yields. Do you still think this will happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like um, the 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 rent the rent increases were often a, a precursor um, to property market booms. And now we're 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 seeing what's quite unusual about this market is that you know vacancy rates are so tight, but the market is going down. But that's where I see as just pent up momentum, right? When we think about um, the, the the stock on market is is quite low. Um, you think about the vacancy rates are, are super super tight, and we're not building uh, we're not going to be building as many homes as we have in the past. That's why I'm kind of thinking the interest rates has got people a little bit spooked. But when mm. the sentiment turns around and when interest rates come back, then there's a lot of pent up energy. Yeah, it's amazing what sentiment does to to property prices. Um, I was pulling up a chart before and it's just property sentiment, property prices. They just follow very much in alignment with each other. So if you can shift the sentiment, it's. Can we do it, Joe? Let's, let's shift. No, maybe not. That's please shift the sentiment, but the interest rates definitely control a lot of the sentiment side of things. Mm -hmm. So that interest rates also supply how much capital is going to a market as well, which definitely. Uh, hinders uh, growth too. So how quickly, yeah, actually, I want to go back to a point that you made, Mike, about interest rates. You said, yeah, it's probably going to be one more raise and and that's about it. That's all you're seeing. Um, that's a, that's a bold call. Your mouth. Might Very be putting words call. in your mouth a little bit, but what are your thoughts on interest rates over the next six to 12 months? It's a tricky one, and I think it is a bold, bold call, but I, I think um, the RBA... And really needs to see the impacts of the decisions that they've made many months ago. Like a lot of the inflationary pressures are coming off globally. Um, I, I think that the the intervention that they've made has still got a bit of time um, to play into the data. You know, so there's yeah. a lot of people saying, look, we, you know, we've got to go hard and we've got to go fast and we've got to go early. But I, I think we, we don't want to get to the point where we're talking about a recession because we've actually smashed people to within an inch of their lives. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I'm expecting interest rates to, to, to go up at, at least another 25 uh, basis points, but I, I, I don't see it going um, much more than that. I think if we're talking an, another, I don't see another percent in it, but again, again, it's just my personal opinion. I'm not necessarily an economist, but I do have a slide on consumer confidence. Oh, that's better than most go. economists. Where is it? Uh, that's not it. Uh, maybe it's this one. Can you see that? We can now. What one more? Yeah. I think you got to do the extra zoom. Do you? Oh, have I got to swap those over? Yeah. Uh, duplicate that one. I like how yep. every single graph says, "Okay, enough bloody graphs." <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is where I'm. I'm. Yeah, this doesn't line up. Uh, I expect here's my here's my prediction. We promise predictions. I expect prices to continue to decline broadly. Don't I sound I sound like an economist with a fairly rapid turnaround mm. once sentiment and rates turn around. So there's there's a graph on consumer confidence. Um, so we've seen a little bit of an uptick in the last little while, um, and there's a lot to be confident about. I mean, um, you know the the, the CPI post. Um, I've, have I, am I? We're back now. Um, 
The last um, CPI post showed, you know, a lot of people spending money over Christmas and going on on holidays and that sort of thing. Um, and when it comes to uh, the the strength of the market, we've got a, a lot of people that are well ahead on their mortgages. You know, the household savings rate went through the roof at the beginning of the pandemic. Because remember, I was talking about, do I get a shotgun? Do I buy, you know, tin fruits? Um, people didn't know what to do. So they, you know, they protected themselves. They they hoarded the cash. And then it's like, oh, we've got all this money, um, we, but we can't go anywhere. You know, we can't go to the restaurant. We can't travel. But then when that could happen, we saw a lot of money being spent. We saw a lot of people doing renovations. We saw, you know, we've seen a lot of um, international travel in the last little while. Um, but, you know, I, I think that mortgages are in fairly good shape um, at the moment. So th there's a lot, I think, to be posit positive about. Yeah. S speaking of being positive, should we, given we're at the hour 30, should we talk about what investors should be thinking about and that they may not? I guess Joe's got it. But Yeah, I just wanted to quickly show what, what I was just discussing, just well, what Mike was talking about as well, and then yeah, overlaying good. that. Um, the Australian consumer confidence here, and everyone can look at this themselves on trading economics. Uh, this is over the last, Not what is it, 10 years. No, it's just a chart you can look at yourself. Um, but you can see that um, it's over dwelling prices month on month. You can kind of see it tracking along with, with consumer sentiment and especially linked over the past, well, since, since COVID happened, really. Um, sentiment was really high and then COVID kicked in and started kicking the, kicking the butt of... Uh, um, prices. Mm. Whoa! Just looked there into the eye of the matrix. Not equaling. I mean, how 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 does correlation? Yeah, exactly. Causation, though. Can you ever? Yeah, do, the, the, like yeah, it, it doesn't always mean that the two things are connected. But I would argue for the affirmative because you know so much of our um, sense of well-being comes from the performance of our assets and the vast majority of the value of our assets comes from houses, um, you know, the properties that we own. Um, and, and, you know, what dominates barbecue conversation? It's like, oh, you know, have you seen this hotspot or did you see they sold their house around the corner for, for X, Y, Z? You know, when the, the, the journalists are continually saying that the market's going down and it's terrible and we're all going to die, um, you know, mm. that, that bleeds into confidence. Definitely. Yeah, you can. And people are confident it. when they're earning more money, when there's job opportunities, you know, when they're when they're buying things that make them feel happy, you know. So that sort of speaks to the, their availability to, you know, to to upgrade or to purchase investment properties as well. Yeah, that's actually an, an interesting thing. I was looking at the saving <laughs> ratio, like how much savings people had during COVID, and it was massive. People had a whole yeah. boatload of savings because they just sat at home. But we still have quite a lot of savings. So I still, I don't see people getting much like poor, like very, they're not going much into poor. negative. They, they, they've still got some capital there. But the problem with that is people have still got that money there. So they're spending it in and that's creating more inflation, which is causing more concern with inflation, which then drives interest rates and well, the, the, the cure for high and... prices though joe is high prices so uh, prices can only go so high before people say well actually i just can't keep affording so then i'm not saying it'll be deflationary but yeah well that's that's what i'm seeing in a lot of like markets is the affordability one for the rental and affordability two for the purchase price is look deeply at 
who is the demographic of the area and how much money have they got? Because it does get to that point, Jeff, where people, mm. you know, the, the average rent is $500 a week rent. Okay, great. Let's move it to 600. Okay. But you, the audience here, the demographic here cannot afford 700. So it's going to hit a point where although the supply is very tight, they're going, they're just not going to be able to pay that. It's not like people are going to rush into that area to pay the 700. It's just, they're not going to be able to afford to actually do it. So it can't be, you know, infinite forever growth. So if you are, that's just a little tip for people, well, not a tip, not financial advice, but look at the affordability <laughs> of the area and the demographic of people. And you might be able to see some areas that still have good potential. Yeah, Is that good enough? Was that not financial advice? Okay. Oh, well, yeah, it's a, it's a broad, 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 uh, broad topic, but, um, let's, let's talk about it. Cause I know you're, you're interested in your passion about what investors should be talking about. And, and, and it's, it's something that I think is somewhat of a public service announcement, just, just as something we don't always think about. So do you have a slide or two on that, Mike, or is it, I'm mm. sure you do. I, I, mate, have I got slides? Um, what, here we got one here. Is that full screen? Not even up. It's not even up. <laughs> <laughs> Can't see anything yet. No. Jeez, this non-alcoholic wine is really getting it's me. It's hitting you. <laughs> hitting you harder what? than you think. Uh, okay. Gee, like, I've, I've, I don't have enough screens in here, um, or too many. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I want to say before I fumble around with all this sort of stuff is that what what people should be thinking about uh, outside of what I'm about to talk about. I think they should be thinking about buying property in all honesty. I think um, there's there's a limited amount of time left for opportunities. I think um, this market is not going to stay down forever. There's a lot of things pointing to a, a resurgence and I would much rather be buying now than buying when, you know, everyone's realised that there are green shoots because often that's lagging the data and it's often a little bit too late. Um, now, that might sort of sound like a sales pitch if I'm a buyer's agent. You're like, oh, we're thinking of waiting. Oh, you've got to do it now. But, like, I don't sell. That's that's not my jam. That's not what I'm about. So um, Yeah, that, that was going to be one of my questions is what's the incentive for you to be saying that? Because as tax depreciation, that that's really the value is us you you telling us to go out there and you know buy new houses no not buy new houses create new houses so you can get better depreciation but you're saying as an investor go buy existing dwellings go and actually go after it so yeah. there's no incentive yeah. for you well no, i suppose if, I mean, if they're like, highly renovated houses that are expensive probably is but yeah, i think it's but i, mean, I like think it. it's great great coming from someone great coming from someone that doesn't have that incentive behind it because this is exactly i'm like looking at this market thinking how the hell how how's the world going to work because there are so few properties people have money and what what's going to happen what where is the market going to go i don't know how it can crash these crazy numbers but it's hard because I've got an incentive to say that. But when someone comes in and doesn't have any incentive, it's like, oh, okay. Why? Well, I think, I think the challenge is at, at the moment, until they stop, until there's some indication interest rates will definitely stop. I, think, I don't think there's going to be, yeah, so that's what, yeah. There's a and window then, and people, then. And then people will start to say, uh, sellers will start to put their properties on their markets. So it'll be, mm. yeah, potentially. Influx of supply. Okay. Maybe, yeah, more confidence. But yeah, it's an interesting one. Under insurance. Up. Hmm. What is under insurance? Oh, well, forget about the, the definitions. Um, 
What I want to what I want to talk about with under insurance is it's the sort of new mantra that we have in our business is we're talking about maximize and protect. Maximize is an obvious one because we want to put our investors in front of educational content that helps them maximize their goals and their outcomes and of course tax depreciation maximizes their cash flow but we go to all this effort to acquire um, properties or even just the one property but we're, we're not protecting them in a, in a in a in a meaningful way. Um, 83% of Australians were underinsured according to the Property Council of Australia. Now, that is pre-pandemic. So that's prior to these crazy um, increases in construction costs. So that number is likely to be a lot higher than that. Um, so you can see there's the history of underinsurance in Australia. CanStar said 77% of residential owners are underinsured in 2013. Um, and, and the ABS even said that 23% of all homes have no insurance. And the weird thing to think about is that many of those are mortgage-backed. So there's banks that have exposure to uninsured assets, which kind of just seems crazy. Um, but presumably that's all kind of worked out in their um, risk models. And, you know, who knows, we might be paying more fees and um, more interest because of that fact. Um, so, you know, non-insurance is, is, is actually a real epidemic and it's pretty sad when you look at the, the demographics. It, you know, correlates with um, people living in cities, you know, born overseas, um, lower levels of education without full-time work, just the people that really need that um, insurance. Um, there wasn't much on those slides, was there? I'll get that. We'll get rid of that. I want to see your faces again. Um, but what I think people really don't understand about insurance, um, gosh, like I've gone from talking about tax depreciation to insurance. Like we start low and we sort of see. We One can hoot. Use. One hell of a guy. <laughs> I know. Um, I can, I can, I'm guilty of this myself. My first home was, was, was a shithole. I can say that, right? Um, and I think most first home buyers can relate to that, right? It's, you know, you got to start somewhere. And I can remember seeing an ad for a building company, you know, one of the big building companies showing this home, this project home is like, you know, we can build this for like $220,000. I'm like, wow, that is so much better than my house. I'll insure my house for 220000 and then I'll just kind of, I guess I'll just get that. Um, so that's more, way more than I need. But what people don't understand is that if your house um, burns down or, you know, there's, there's some natural disaster, um, you're not necessarily getting a, a brand new flat block ready for the building company to come in and do it. There's demolition costs. There's there's cost escalations with the tendering period. It might be something that's built uh, in a way that doesn't fit code anymore. It's too close to the boundary or, you know, for, ah. for older dwellings it's fine, but there's now new bushfire regulations or there's BASICs or, you know, there's, a, there's, there's airport noise abatement issues, so you need double glazing. There's a million different reasons reasons why um, people don't understand that the cost to rebuild a property is not the same as the cost to build a property. And the, 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 the issue is, is that um, the, the, when, when you talk about under insurance, there's something called a, a co-insurance clause. So if you are underinsured, then you're not going to get your, your insurance amount back. Another way to put that is let's say you've got a house that 
has a rebuild cost of a million dollars. You insure it for 800000 and the whole thing burns down. You're not going to get your $800,000 of insurance because you've underinsured it by 20%. The insurance company will say, well, you took a risk by underinsuring that asset and we didn't agree to that, so we're only going to give you 80% of that $800,000. So that, you know, you go through this this issue of, you know, having your, your life destroyed and then, you've potentially got that tap on the shoulder to say, you know, you're going to have to chip in here. Um, mm. Mother Nature is really, really annoyed with what we've been doing to her and these events become much more frequent. And, you know, underinsurance is, 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 is an epidemic that we're pretty passionate about trying to share people's understanding of it. And some of the big problems come from valuation reports where valuers will put a replacement cost estimate on something. They're not qualified to do that work and there's a disclaimer in their report saying that they need a quantity surveyor to do it. And people using online calculators, which just aren't really good enough. Um, so people really need to be able to understand their construction costs. Now, we do... Um, replacement cost estimates for insurance. We do these reports. We do them at a flat fee of 600 plus GST for anything under $10 million. Um, and that includes commercial property where they've got plans as well. But the appetite, I've got to tell you, in the residential space is not there. People are happy to pay me six or $700 for a depreciation schedule that puts $3,000 back in their pocket. But will they pay $600 to say you're underinsured, you're risking that asset, so now you really ought to put your premium up? The appetite is just kind of not there. We, we, you know, we we fear the tax, uh, and we want to we want to get that back more than we think about the consequences of underinsuring an asset. Well, I mean, my insurance just went up twenty three percent. Is that not enough insurance money that I'm paying to to get a? <laughs> well, it's a premium though, and how much your property is actually insured for. Yeah, I mean, did did your you know your cover in, in increase or was it just the extra cost of the premium? See, see, that's the problem too. Because if people, um, if there's national disasters, um, then you know that might actually affect the premium of the people that aren't affected by that, but are in that location or even in that state, right? The the insurance companies are recouping that um, somewhere. So you know these natural disasters are going to make insurance you know much more expensive for for all of us there's a few different sort of insurance co-ops that are trying to solve this problem but you know we've had there's been issues with those um but yeah insurance costs themselves are a whole another question and you know that just comes down to the fact that um you know we're having a lot of uh, a lot of these natural disasters and, and issues happening in in the country and around the world how important uh because one of the rules that I have, like I, I like to have rules for investing. So no fire, no flood, no easements, no encumbrances, all, all of that stuff. How important are these natural disaster ones like no flood, no fire uh, for for your perspective of investing? Oh, look, I, I think um, you've really got to understand uh, your exposure to, to things like flood, like flooding. Flooding's a really obvious one. And, you know, the, the councils do have surveyors that um, pre prepare those reports that, you know, inform what could be built in those locations. I mean, there's certain locations where I live where, you know, things have to be built a metre off the ground because it's just a known low-lying flood area. So it's it's critical that people understand that and, and do the due diligence behind that. Um, 
And, you know, you can find yourself buying a property that is uninsurable from a flood point of view. Uh, and it might just be they just won't do it or it might be $26,000 a year to cover yourself from flood. Now, you know, if, if, if you can afford that, then, you know, that's, that's coming from somewhere, right? So it's affecting your return. If you can't afford that, then you're rolling the dice that you're going to have to chip in your pocket if something happens. Unreal. So much money. Yeah, and it's one of those costs that you you might not even be aware of. You've already purchased the property and then you realize it's half in a flood zone, fully in a flood zone, and you're going to have to pay. You're going to yeah. lose all like of your flood net gain. Fly zones, people, definitely. Yes. Um, there's a couple of questions here about insurance, and I don't know if you can answer them, um, but you're the man that brought up the insurance. Is it good to let insurance expire than re-sign to get a better deal? Uh, I get very nervous when I'm thinking about a, a period of time where the property is uninsured. Um, mm. I actually made the mistake of letting the insurance lapse on my um, car many years ago and then um, managed to introduce it to a telegraph pole. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was a very expensive weekend, that one, um, because I just <laughs> left it a bit too late. I, I don't think you should be should be doing that um, in, in principle. Um, is it... Are you going to get a better deal? Um, I don't actually know. I, I, you know, we don't sell insurance products. Um, we can't sort of provide that advice. I mean, our area of expertise is making sure that you're insuring it for the correct amount to rebuild mm. the property. But I would absolutely recommend talking to uh, an insurance broker. I think that's part part of the issue. When it comes to replacement cost estimate reports that we do, the vast majority of them are on commercial properties where we're engaged by an insurance broker. So we work with a lot of the big insurance aggregators and they understand that they have really have a duty of care to make sure that insurance product is fit for purpose and it's the correct amount. So they're sort of seeing, well, it's really a no-brainer to pay us to basically buy our professional indemnity so that if there's a problem, we've got to explain, you know, why they're underinsured rather than them, right? So I would have a chat to an insurance broker if you can. And a lot of residential property owners just never have any interaction with an insurance broker. It tends to be more, you know, commercial property owners and commercial business owners. But, but, but seek out um, the services of an insurance broker for questions like that. Yeah, and another thing just to mention on that is you can you don't have to wait for it to expire. You can have ten days left on your existing one and then buy a new yes. plan and it overlaps. So that's probably the safest bet. Yeah, you might pay an extra couple of dollars, but you've then got coverage. Um or time yep. it and say, I want my new policy to start the day this one expires or the day before this one expires. I'm sure that's a little paperwork thing. Yeah, um, and, and and like I don't know this for sure. I've never actually done it, but I'm sure you'd get a rebate on the remaining time. Um, or at least worth the question. I know changing, you know, my car insurance. I've had that happen, or when I sold a property, uh, sold a, a car, mm. for example. So you know, you might not necessarily be needing to to pay for the back end of that policy. Um, you know, you're you're sort of cancelling that that contract and moving on to another one. Love it. Right. Okay, well, let's jump into questions. I think this has been a really varied topic from um, someone that's in the industry in a different way. You're from, I feel like you come from a, a different angle. Like you just overlook property. You're not, uh, you're not like, you're not knocking on doors and, and, and buying and selling these things, but you see a whole heap of transactions and look at it from a different angle. And also you're interviewing experts all the time on, 
on your Geared 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 growth. growth podcast as well. Um, so it's awesome to get these, get these, uh, yeah, hearing all of this. And it's good to hear that it's not just like when we get experts on that have an incentive to sell the property market, you've got no real incentive to sell the property market, but you're still saying similar things about supply and demand and affordability, like what is going to happen? And mm. it's all around, it's looking pretty good. Um, yeah. Do you foresee more power given to CDC approvals to help fast track developments and this is from Jenny complying development certificates approved. great question Jenny. great question yeah yeah I mean like the the difference between a complying and development and having to go through a full DA is pretty stark from a effort and a, and a cost point of view do I foresee it I mean like the, another question you could say is like would that be a good idea like yes that would be a great idea do I foresee it it's you know it's up to the councils right because we're, we're not talking about decisions that um, Albanese makes or Perite or or what have you it, it's 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 local councils so um, look I, I'd love to see the barriers to development and, and construction be removed as 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 much as still protects you know the aesthetic of areas and the, the the quality of of dwellings and the safety of the people that that live in them but do i foresee it i mean i haven't seen anything that that makes me think that there's there's going to be a fundamental change there but but sooner or later we've got to look at all the uh, all the things that make supply more difficult um and and the planning part of it is 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 part of that solution yeah interesting that's a, that's a good insight I uh, I didn't think of it that way. And also with these government incentives, um, it's also trying to get votes. They have to actually be taken in and and the government needs to be getting votes for people to vote for them. So they, they can't say stuff like, let's incentivize property investors to get the supply going more. You just can't, mm. you just can't say it. And Jenny said, Dan was hoping something was in the works. So. <laughs> And yeah, I'm sorry, Jenny. And there, there may very well be. I mean, I'm not a, tan, a town planner. We don't uh, we don't do any uh, compliance um, inspections or anything like that. Um, so you know, hopefully there is, but I haven't heard any rumblings um, in, in yeah. the people that I speak to. Love the it. Other, okay. Well, the other star. This uh, star. Oh, we've go got time for one more. Let's let's do it. Ooh. Why not? Because I think go this on. one was interesting. And I think the safer is is all relative. So I don't know. You want to comment on? Okay. A, well, a so what land. is better or safer to buy a house or land package that one builder is in the estate, or buy a house and land package and engage your own builder, which is less risky? Mm. I think it's in regards uh, to liquidation, I suppose. That we were talking yeah, about. I mean, it's there's a lot of hypotheticals to that, right? Like. Um, it it really depends on the builder. I mean, a house and land package um, where, say, the, the the property is is given to you as a final package, not like you've contracted to a house and land package and now it needs to be built, is a very different thing. Um, if if it's a reasonable price, I'd rather have the built product than be you know um, leaving it to the gods of construction prices and construction company liquidations. But you know there are certain things that you can do uh, to assess the health um, of a builder. Um, quantity surveyors do do progress claims for 
um, construction projects where there's bank finance. Now, this is not something that normally is engaged when people are getting a builder to build the property, but we do things like get um, the builders to sign stat decks to say that all their subcontractors are paid up. So there's all sorts of little warning flags mm. that we're looking at the health of that construction because the, the, the worst thing that the bank can happen is that they have to step in and take over the, the, the property, and they, but they do want to make sure that they maintain the cost to complete so that if something happens to that that builder or that developer um, and, and they have to take hold of that asset, then there's enough money left in that budget to continue those works and they can sell the property. So um, I, I would I would be one I'd I'd be feeling more comfortable comfortable if it was um, if it was done. But then if two builders are equal, you've got one that's contracted to deliver a, a package of works in an estate, but one is just a random one that you've found. It could be a, mm. a, a good thing that they've got this this contract to deliver this work so they can forecast on it. Although during you know that peak period of, of prices, they could have been contracted at you know a six percent margin because they were trying to buy work and construction costs you know went up twenty percent, and you know they're at a higher risk. So. It's a hard question to to answer without mm. all of those um, little sort of hypotheticals and, and caveats being thrown in there. I, I hate to sound like a politician, uh, but that's the best I can do for you. It no, depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah, awesome. Mike, thank you so much for showing up today and un unpacking some amazing insights. Um, how can people learn more about you? How can people learn more about tax depreciation as well? Um, and yeah, give us a bit of a, give us a bit of a run through on that. And how can we learn more? How can you learn more? Um, once you sort of come to our website or you follow me on LinkedIn or Facebook, you really can't get away. So if you do like, be careful what you wish for. If you do want to learn more, you know, find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, our website is MCG, like the cricket ground, QS for quantitysurveyors.com.au. Um, but you can reach out to me as well. Um, you can email me, mike at mcgqs.com.au. Happy to help out wherever I can, share the slides. Um, thanks to Jay Anderson, who that must be. I can't see his is, name. Yeah. But Jay and I'll actually be um, riding for a charity called um, Feel the Magic that raises money for children that have lost a, uh, a parent or parents, uh, and they put on grief uh, camps for kids that are going through that to help them uh, through the loss. So please go to magicride.com.au and you can decide um, whether you want to donate some money to Jay or myself, me, obviously. Um, but, yeah, Who's I'd love winning? you to get behind that. If, if I've said anything that, that you've got something for or, or, or has had any value, you feel free to repay me by providing some money to that um, beautiful charity. Yes, load that, load that up there, Jeff. Um, and anyone that is listened, who has listened to this, put some dollars behind it. Help, um, help them out because that sounds like an amazing, an amazing cause. Um, thank you very much, Mike. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of cover off or, or dive into? I I can just imagine everyone at home going, please God no. Yeah. We've done an hour and fifty <laughs> We've done an hour and fifty-six minutes. I've finished almost a bottle of oh pardon me, non-alcoholic wine. I think I think that's um it's just time for me to say thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure and I'll come back anytime you'll have me. <laughs> Last time it was real wine that you finished half a bottle of. Now it's it's uh 
non-alcoholic and you've been oh, superb no. both ways so <laughs> i like it <laughs> i don't know which one which which version i prefer i love it all <laughs> let's do it okay thank you very much mike um let's go buy a property guys hear more interviews and share your story with some of australia's top property experts and commentators now by joining the Oz Property Investors Facebook group with over 25,000 property investors so we can all become better property investors together. Just a quick reminder that anything we covered on this podcast is not considered as financial advice. This is general information only. You need to go and speak with your qualified professionals to understand your unique circumstances as this is general advice only. If you got any value out of this podcast, feel free to recommend us to your friends and leave us a review. Thank you very much for listening and have a fantastic day. Let's go buy property.